a Fulton County grand jury returned a true bill of indictment, charging 19 individuals with violations of Georgia law arising from a criminal conspiracy to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election in this state. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is the weekly roundup, but we're going to do things a little bit differently this week. Instead of looking at some of the biggest news stories this week, we're going to take a deep dive into the biggest story driving our politics right now, which is the latest indictment of Donald Trump in Fulton County, Georgia. We'll put this case in the context of the other criminal cases Trump is facing. We'll dive into the laws designed to fight organized crime the district attorney used to get this indictment and what her strategy is and how it differs from special counsel Jack Smith's and what we should expect the timeline of this case to look like. Returning to the Roundup to help break all of this down is Michael Zeldin. Michael is a TV and radio legal analyst and a former federal prosecutor. He held several senior positions at the Justice Department, including Deputy Chief of the Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs Section, the Chief of the Money Laundering and Asset Forfeiture Offices, and Special Counsel for Money Laundering to Criminal Division Assistant Attorney General Robert Mueller. He is also the host of the podcast That Said with Michael Zeldin. Michael, welcome back to Politicology. I know it's been a little while. Thank you for making the time. Well, thanks so much for having me again. We got a lot to talk about here. Uh, On Monday, a grand jury in Fulton County, Georgia, decided they had heard enough evidence to indict Donald Trump and 18 other people on RICO charges for their plot to subvert the 2020 election in the state. And those other people indicted include Rudy Giuliani, former New York City mayor and Trump ally and lawyer, John Eastman, the architect of the infamous now Eastman memo that claimed the vice president had unilateral authority to reject state's electoral college votes, Mark Meadows, the former White House chief of staff under Trump, including during the post-election period. Kenneth Chesbro, who is the architect of the fake electors scheme. Jeffrey Clark, a former senior Justice Department official who Trump considered for the role of acting attorney general. Uh, Jenna Ellis, who is a Trump campaign lawyer who also authored memos saying that Pence should disregard certified electoral college votes. And last but not least, Sidney Powell of release the Kraken fame. Uh, So this is now the fourth criminal indictment Donald Trump has received this year. Um, And I just want to uh, survey the landscape briefly before we dive into this fourth one. Across the four cases, there are a lot of different charges that have ranged alleged crimes, lots of differences in what the prosecutors will need to prove, differences in the perceived strength of those cases based on the information we have available. Um, So Chronologically speaking, we have a grand jury in New York indicting Trump over the hush money payments to Stormy Daniels. Um, As I understand it, that is probably the weakest case to get a conviction. Prosecutors are going to need to prove that Trump committed a federal campaign finance felony on the way to violating state law. Um, Second, chronologically, is the federal grand jury in Florida indicting Trump over his Mishandling feels so euphemistic. So let's say theft, retention, improper storage of, sharing of, obstruction and concealment of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. This is probably the strongest case, uh, I think. A second federal grand jury in Washington, D.C., this is the third one, indicted him over the 2020 election subversion plot. Uh, This is the one that we've discussed the last few weeks and that prosecutors will have to prove Trump's mental state. 
Um, and if the status quo holds, this fourth indictment, which is the Georgia trial, will be the only one televised. Uh, conviction would come with a pretty high cost. There's a mandatory minimum sentence of five years, uh, which we should probably qualify uh, under the Georgia RICO charge. So with that as a bit of a table set, how do you see the lay of the land on the different Trump cases up to now and including this this fourth one out of Georgia? Um, you agree with that, disagree with any of that? And um, and then we will dive into dive into Fannie Willis's indictment. Okay, so I agree with your assessment of each of these cases, the, the New York case requiring proof that Donald Trump hid his conduct, made false business entries to cover up a payment to Stormy Daniels. He, the way he did that was structured payments to Michael Cohen, who laid out the hush money, and they were recorded on the books of his business as being for legal services, which they were not. And the proof that will be required is that he did this in this way to violate New York state and federal election laws. It's a weak case in many respects, but it's also pretty clear that this is what he did because this was a payment made just before the election for a crime of hush money payments that he had never admitted to. And the way they structured the payment seemed to be specifically directed at not having this be revealed just prior to the election. They had the problem with the recording um, where he talked about being able to grab people and uh, that he survived. I believe that they knew that they couldn't take a second hit along those lines. And this is why it was structured. And this is why Bragg says the only reason that this makes sense is that they did this this way to violate New York state and federal election laws. So I think there's a story to be told there, essentially saying, why would you do this if not to cover it up prior to the election? So it's not a great case because of the reliance on federal election laws in a state case, but it's still a case. The Mar-a-Lago case, I think, is the strongest case, as, as you indicated, and that is the unlawful retention of these documents and then the refusal to return them, and then beyond the refusal to return them, the obstructive behavior when everyone knew he had them. Most, I think, compelling is the most recent addition to the indictment, the Carlos de Oliveira. He was added after the first indictment and the superseding indictment because they had evidence now on the videotape, the closed circuit video, of him actually moving the documents. And so Walt Nottow, who was initially indicted, said, I don't know anything about moving documents. And now they have the video of them moving the documents. And Trump, I think, has put it a much more difficult position when he's asked, essentially, is this a complete return of all of these documents? And he says, yes, when there's videotape showing documents being removed prior to the search. So I think it's a very strong case, and I think there's also a false statements component to this that that um, convict Nato and Olivieri uh, very quickly, which implies to me that if they get independent attorneys, which is a big issue in this case, and, the, and if we take a detour for a minute, the, the Jack Smith has been arguing to 
Judge Cannon in the Mar-a-Lago case, and I think we'll argue the same to um, Judge Chuckin in the January 6th case, that there are too many conflicts of interest among the Trump legal team. That is, they're representing too many people who have divergent legal interests. And the thought here is that Trump, who is paying for these through his PAC, is essentially paying for their silence because these lawyer fees are enormous. We saw Rudy Giuliani pleading poverty the other day because he can't make his legal bill payments. And the thought here is that Natow and Diola Vieira and others who are having their fees paid are being essentially bought off. And so the, the prosecutors are saying to the judges, would you please take a look at this? Because each lawyer has an independent duty to represent clients one by one, and they can't be sort of shilling for Donald Trump um, by telling these witnesses, you know, to keep the story. So that's a it's a sub story in in all this representation. But Nato and Oliveira, I think, are dead in the water in the Mar-a-Lago case. And as I said, if they had independent counsel, counsel that is not being paid for by Donald Trump, then you might see them choosing to cooperate and offer um, testimony against Trump. That's something to keep an eye on. And as I said, they, the prosecutors aware of this are, are now filing motions to the judge saying, hey, judge, you got to look into this because this is, is not good. Okay, so the, the, the next case, the next federal case, which is the conspiracy to defraud the United States by plotting to overturn the election results. Yeah, this uh, one's of, tough. Of 2020. This is a difficult case in the sense that Donald Trump has said, in his defense, that one, most of the conduct he engaged in was First Amendment protected. Two, even if it wasn't First Amendment protected, he did so relying on the advice of counsel. And three, he had an honest belief that he lost because of fraud and all he was trying to do was investigate these fraudulent allegations. So he's got to, he's got to offer to the jury that is, is attractive in some sense. His biggest problem in this and all of these cases is that that defense and any other defense he may have um, calls for him to testify. How to make a defense that I honestly believed that I didn't lose the election or I wasn't withholding these documents with criminal intent. I thought under the Presidential Records Act, I was allowed to do this and therefore I didn't do it willfully. All of that sort of testimony, which is in some sense facially ridiculous, but in another sense, it's a defense that a juror could buy and hang the jury on. You get just one juror who believes that, and then you get a hung jury. It calls for him to testify because it's not easy to make that through cross-examination of other witnesses. He can't testify. Everyone knows he can't testify. He can't. He's got a very strained relationship with the truth. And he, you can't do that under oath in, in court. And so these cases where the prosecutor can say, it's impossible for you to have had a honest belief that you lost the election. Look at all the people, including your own campaign people, who told you otherwise. It's impossible for uh, us to believe that what you were doing was just honestly investigating uh, fraud when your language is that of, of, of a shakedown. If you don't do this, you'll be violating criminal laws, he tells uh, the 
Secretary of State in, in Georgia and, and elsewhere. So I think he's got a big problem because of his inability to to testify. And I think that because of these indictments, and this carries over to Georgia as well, because these indictments involve a lot of action, not just speech. Remember, in, in this case, Jack Smith cleverly, I think, did not charge him with anything related to his speech on mm-hmm. the ellipse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's the First Amendment stuff that's really thorny. Mm-hmm. He said, I don't need that. Yeah. No, be, because I can tell this story of criminal behavior by his conduct, mm. the way he created a false elector scheme, the way he shook down public officials. Um, all of that is action. That's not speech. And you've got a and constitutional then, right to lie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you have a short life. Exactly. Can can I take you down a quick detour on that case just briefly? Because we've talked we've talked we've talked a lot about uh how you know one of the things that makes this so difficult is that you're gonna have to prove criminal intent, i.e. it's going to be the jury's job to determine what was going on inside his head, essentially. Um but I think uh to to ask a very uh Luddite question when it comes to the law, I think ordinary listeners might have um this, you know, uh brain worm in there, you know, wondering like, well, hang on a second. I was told ignorance of the law is no excuse, right? A crime is a crime, whether you know it's a crime or not, you committed it. So can you just explain to someone who uh, thinks like, well, you did, you did a bad thing. It doesn't matter if you knew it was against the law. Usually you get prosecuted. Can you explain why this is different and why criminal intent applies here? Well, it's a state of mind crime. It's a crime that that does require you to have some understanding of your behavior uh, and and the willfulness. It's not like a speeding ticket, which is not a state of mind. I didn't know it was a 55 mile an hour speed limit is not really a defense uh, to that sort of crime. But this type of crime where you have to prove willfulness, that that the person, knowing that this was the law, purposely went and violated it. That's the nature of this prosecution. This is why the state of mind stuff is is relevant. Because that's what fraud is, essentially. Exactly. You have, to, you have to know in advance that it's illegal and then conspire essentially to do it. Exactly. Okay. I have to know that I can't overthrow <laughs> the government. Con- conversely, the thing, the this is that, part of why the Mar-a-Lago case is much stronger because it doesn't require that criminal intent, right? Right. And the thing, though, that is... I think undermining of the notion that that Trump's state of mind is all that uh, hard to prove in this case is that the only people who were telling him that he may have lost because of fraud are the unindicted co-conspirators. Nobody else, not his White House counsel, not the Justice Department, not his own campaign pollsters, all of them said, you lost. the only people that said you didn't lose are unindicted co-conspirators, and now in Georgia, indicted um, co-conspirators. And so, if you if you're saying to the jury, "I didn't know," and you put on a as a prosecutor, you put on all of the witnesses who said, "I told you you lost. I told you you lost. Here's the data that shows you lost." Then he says, "Well, but Rudy Giuliani, my unindicted co-conspirator, or John Eastman, my unindicted co-conspirator, told me otherwise." The prosecutor's answer to that is they were. co-conspirators with you. They weren't giving you legal advice. They were just saying, let's figure out how we can perpetuate or or, 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 or 
initiate this crime. So I, I think it's not that hard. Um, and again, without him testifying uh, to to his state of mind, uh, I think it's a, a very winnable case. And that brings us to Georgia. So maybe before we get into the specifics of the case, we ought to remind people that um, that a grand jury uh, is who ultimately approved this indictment. Do you want to just briefly explain what a true bill is um, and how, how we got to this indictment in the first place, lest anyone think that this is a sole prosecutor deciding on her own uh, to indict the former president? Sure. And Georgia is very unique in among the states and how they go about investigating crime. In this case, the prosecutor's office convened what was called a special grand jury. This was an investigative grand jury. They only had the power to investigate. And so from the voter records, they choose a whole group of people like you would do in a regular jury. They ask the questions about conflicts and otherwise, and they finally select 23 people, ordinary citizens um, chosen you know, as a regular a petite jury in a, in a courtroom would be chosen. They're sworn um, and they serve for a period of months uh, as, as a special grand jury. I think it was eight months in, in this case that they served. They listen to 75 witnesses over that time. And then they issued a report to the prosecutor, which goes to the court of their findings of that long investigation. And what they concluded was the people who came before us convinced us that there were crimes committed. And so we, the grand jury, recommend to you, the prosecutor, that you should convene another grand jury that is allowed to indict. And that's what the prosecutors did. So they went through the process again. They called in a whole host of people, um, uh, asked them all the conflicts questions. Can you be you know, fair and neutral and listen to the law and all that stuff? They got to 23 of them. They all swore to their, their oath. And then the prosecutors presented the summary of the findings from the investigative grand jury and a live witness, the, lieutenant, the former lieutenant governor, and they said, so what do you guys think? Do you agree with the special grand jury that crimes were committed? And we, the prosecutors, would suggest to you that the evidence supports the following crimes, which became the indictment. And they voted uh, yes. And the way it works is you have 23 people. They sit in a, in a room, sort of looks like a classroom in some sense, and they vote it, uh, charge by charge. And you need a majority. So 12 of the 23 have to vote. Yes. We don't know what the, the vote was. We don't know whether it was 23 to zero or 13 to 11, but we, we know that as to what is in the indictment, they all voted, uh, the majority voted to indict. And that's what is called a true bill it means an indictment. If they, if they said, well, we'd like you to also indict this defendant for this crime, and they said, well, yeah, we don't have any evidence that he did that crime, and they vote less than a majority. That's called a no bill. So you have a no bill, which is no, we refuse to indict, or you have a true bill, which is an indictment. So these, in this case, 46 Atlanta citizens reviewed the evidence the prosecutors put forth, and they voted ultimately 
to indict. And that's how we have an indictment. So this is not this is not the weaponized right um, right Atlanta uh, <laughs> district attorney's office. Yeah, she's a she she's a she is a partisan elected district attorney. That's right. But the way the structure is, there is this group of citizens that are in the middle. And, you know, some will say, well, fine, but there's that adage of a prosecutor can indict a ham sandwich. That's not really been my experience. My experience is, is that in these types of large investigative cases, these grand jurors are very active in reviewing uh, the evidence and, and that a prosecutor could not get an indictment of a ham sandwich. This is a case that evidence really has to support criminal conduct. So you got to show that there's enough of a there there to, to, for, a, for, a, for, a, for ordinary citizens to say, yeah, it's worth bringing the resources of this state to bear in prosecuting, uh, prosecuting the case. Uh, so, that's and, right. and that's where we ended up. Okay. So after the indictment was filed, uh, the DA, Fannie Willis, held a press conference, and here's how she summarized the indictment. A Fulton County grand jury returned a true bill of indictment, charging 19 individuals with violations of Georgia law arising from a criminal conspiracy to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election in this state. Every individual charged in the indictment is charged with one count of violating Georgia's Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act through participation in a criminal enterprise in Fulton County, Georgia and elsewhere to accomplish the illegal goal of allowing Donald J. Trump to seize the presidential term of office beginning on January 20th, 21. All right. So why don't we start here? Uh, I think we need to set the table and lay out what's actually being accused here. And I think in order to do that, uh, we need to understand what these RICO statutes are, what they're designed to do, and how state RICO statutes are different from the federal RICO statute, which I think most people will be familiar with. So could you... um, in any order you think makes the most sense, walk us walk us through RICO, federal versus state, and what is Fonnie Willis actually accusing the president of? Sure. So RICO, the Racketeer Influence Corrupt Organizations Act, passed federally in 1970, was passed so that prosecutors could target people in positions of authority within criminal organizations. If you think about it, you have Don Corleone sitting in his uh, house in wherever that house was, and you have all his foot soldiers doing the crimes. And they could charge and convict the foot soldiers, but they really couldn't get to Don Corleone because he had no fingerprints on anything. So they said, this doesn't work that well. And so we need a statute that lets us get to the, the bosses who are giving all of these orders by wink or nod or or otherwise, because otherwise the foot soldiers are fungible. You can always get another foot soldier, but you can't get the capo, the, the, the head guy. So we need a statute that allows us to do that. And that's what RICO uh, was drafted for, to allow 
the prosecuting authorities to get the heads of these criminal organizations. And so the statute was adopted in 1970 with the notion of organized crime syndicates um, in mind. But the way the statute was written and the way the drafters of the statute have testified about it, it was never intended to just involve organized crime syndicates, that it was broadly crafted to allow for a wide range of criminal activities that may take different forms under the statute. And in fact, ironically, of course, the person who used this statute in a non-organized crime way for the first time was Rudy Giuliani when he prosecuted Wall Street financial um, mavens for this conduct. Princeton Newport was, you know, Michael Milken, um, Ivan Bosky, all those guys were charged under this federal RICO statute. So Giuliani recognized immediately this statute was broad enough to cover a, a range of perpetrators, not just organized crime. And the Supreme Court was asked to re- review this and in a nine to nothing decision said, absolutely right. That That is what the law as written allows for. If you don't want it to be that way, change the law. But the law was never changed. And so states now looking at this federal RICO statute saying, you know, we got the same problem here in our state. We can't get the higher ups. We can only get the underlings. So they started passing their own state versions of RICO. And Georgia did that in 1980. So 10 years after 1970s federal law, and they watch how this statute is being used, they say that would be that would be great to have here. And so legislature of Georgia passes the, the Georgia RICO Act, and it requires that they prove pretty much what is required in the federal, which is an enterprise, a, a, a consortium of people who, through a pattern of activity, racketeering activity, um, which is sort of a conspiracy and overt acts and further ovens, engage in a scheme that violates uh, the laws of their state. And that's what it is. And an individual um, now who's in charge of a racketeering organization and enterprise can be charged under this statute. And that's what Fannie Willis has used in the cheating scandal. There was a, uh, a cheating scandal um, in in Georgia where they were Teachers and administrators were fudging uh, results of tests in an organized way. This was a big national story. People will remember that. That's right. And exactly. And she used the RICO statute successfully to say this is an enterprise. This is not one-off individuals. This is an organized conspiracy to alter the test results so that we look better than we, we actually are. And all that was required is to prove the enterprise and a conspiratorial agreement to reach a, a, a certain end, and then related activities, related crimes mm-hmm. to accomplish that mm-hmm. objective. She's using that now in the case of uh, um, rap stars in Atlanta, who she says are really members of a gang involved in gang activity, and they're using they're using their lyrics in song to convey messages. Huh. Now, so the over, oh, if you look at the overt acts in that statute, in that in prosecution, they'll say when the name of a 
rap artist that I don't know says in a song X Y Z. That's 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 a signal mm. that you 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 who are listening yeah need need to do that. And we saw we've seen that happen back in in the day in 1963 when they were protesting the segregation in Birmingham, Alabama. They the, the civil rights leaders got a very well-known radio DJ to work with them. And the way he would communicate to the students who were going to be the protesters is that on his radio show, he would say, hey, it's going to be cool when we get together in the park. And and that was the signal to, <laughs> for the students to, to get together. Um, and they're saying the same thing in, in this case. So anyway, that is the state of the law in Georgia. They can use this statute to prosecute enterprises that engage in a scheme to violate the law. And what she said in this case, in the um, Georgia RICO case, is that there was an enterprise headed by Donald Trump and his 18 co-conspirators to try and overturn the legitimate results of the 2020 presidential election by using false claims of election fraud to obstruct the federal function by which results are collected, counted, and certified. That was their objective. And they had, they, and she charged they did it in multiple ways. They called it the, they call it the manner and means section of the indictment. And in addition to false claims to induce legislators to act, they organized fraudulent slates of electors who were attempting to mimic or pretend that they were the real the real electors. And so again, there you have them talking to fake electors slates. So there's the talking part of it for sure, but they're talking to them to say, let's commit this crime together. Let's you pretend that you're real electors when you're not, and we'll try to defraud the, the government by you representing yourselves to be something that that you're not. They did the same thing with the Justice Department. They said to the Justice Department, that's why Jeffrey Clark is um, charged here. You, Justice Department, what we want you to do is give us a letter that says there is real fraud here and then leave it to us to do the rest. Very similar to the call with Zelensky in Ukraine. Remember, what does he say to Zelensky? Just say you're investigating Biden and we'll take it from there. All we need is the hook that says you're you're investigating and we'll take it from there. And what does they what are this charge here is they say they want the Justice Department to conduct a sham electric election crime investigation and send out letters saying that there's a investigation of fraud that's serious and ongoing when all that was a lie that was again intended to impact the outcome so you hear defense lawyer for trump lauro saying they're trying to criminalize speech all he's doing is talking but that's not really a fair representation what he what the prosecutors have charged here they're saying yes he's talking but he's talking to obtain a criminal end and so if, if you look by analogy, for example, you walk into a bank 
with a with a gun in your pocket and you say to the teller, "Give me all the money in your draw." Well, that's talk. He's he's just talking, but he's say, he's talking to get a crime committed. Give me the money in your draw uh, is, is speech, but it's not protected speech because it's 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 a crime. And so here, what Penny Wills is saying is that all this speech was intended to induce people to do things that were either illegal per se or which furthered the objectives of the conspiracy. So Mark Mark Meadows, for example, has said, everything that I did was perfectly legal. Nothing I did, set up a meeting, all that stuff was perfectly legal. And Fannie Fannie Willis' response is, well, let's, let's look at a bank robbery. Three people get together. And they say, we're going to rob the bank. So they say, well, what do we need to do in order to rob the bank? Well, we got to get a car. We got to get a pencil and we got to get a piece of paper to write the note on. We got to get a funny clown nose and, and a fake uh, mustache so that they don't recognize us. And so why don't we go out and get all those things and then we'll be ready to rob the bank. All of those things, buying the clown nose and getting a piece of paper and a pencil and, and getting a car, all perfectly legal. But they're not legal when put together toward the objective of robbing the bank. And what she said here is all of these things that you're doing, Mark Meadows and Jeffrey Clark and Rudy Giuliani, while not per se illegal, become illegal because they're part of, they're the overt acts, they're the acts in furtherance of the objective of stealing this election, of robbing the bank or whatever the objectives, cheating in, in the, uh, school cases. That's what is going on here. And that's what she's charging. So that's why I'm saying it's not really pure speech. It's it's speech in an effort to achieve a illegal objective. That's what that's what she's charged here. That when you look at the indictment, you'll see that there are things that are called overt acts. Right. And there are racketeering act. There are that's right. There are racketeering acts in there which are crimes per se. It's illegal to s- solicit a person to violate their oath of office. That's a Georgia crime. You can't do that. But it's, it is lawful to set up a meeting. But if that meeting is being set up to help achieve the objective of the conspiracy, while legal mm. in and of itself, it becomes illegal because it's part of the pattern of behavior that allows the enterprise to succeed. So, so don't be deceived when someone says, well, I only bought... I only bought a car. I only bought a paper and pencil. And you say, well, why did you buy those cars? And why did you buy that pencil? Well, because we were going to rob a bank. They say, well, there you have it. You know, that's why why we've charged you with conspiracy to rob a bank. Because (laughs) that's what you were doing. You were robbing a bank. And here, this is what you were doing. You were trying to overturn the results of the election. And you did it in a a whole host of, of ways, which we've outlined quite clearly in our indictment with overt acts and racketeering acts, right. legal and illegal acts. So this difference that you're getting at, which is the the overt acts versus the predicate act, really the, the combination of these two is what allows uh, Willis to tell a story with the indictment um, because it, in in a way that we haven't seen necessarily in, in other indictments, she gets to tell the full story of the conspiracy in order to prove the conspiracy, even even things that didn't take place in Georgia, she's allowed to include those in the um, in the indictment. Essentially, the stuff that happened in Arizona, for example, 
Um, so can you talk a little bit more about the strategy of, uh, uh, of, of this approach? And also, um, we should talk about what she's probably hoping, expecting will happen here because there are a lot of people indicted. Um, I, I think she may have said that, uh, they plan to try all of them within six months <laughs> and, uh, more than likely what we'll have is people flipping on Trump in order to narrow down that pool of defendants. Can you talk a little bit about the strategy here? Sure. So Fannie Willis, like every good prosecutor, wants to tell the jury a story. When you think of a closing argument, the, the way prosecutors, at least the way I was when I was a prosecutor, even when I was a defense attorney, the first thing I did after I sort of understood what the case was about was I wrote my closing argument. It's not intuitive, but I wrote my closing argument because I want to say to the jury, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, this is the story and this is why the defendant should be found guilty or found not guilty, depending on which side you're on. So you write that story and then you say, all right, what evidence can I gather to allow me to tell that story? So Fannie Willis, like all good prosecutors, has a story that she wants to tell. And what she believes is that the way, the best way for her to tell the story is through this RICO statute, which allows her to say, ladies and gentlemen, on day one, these individuals gathered and agreed to try and overturn the results of the election. They did this in a, in a, in a series of ways, which we just talked about this manner and means. And in furtherance of that, they engaged in certain overt acts, acts that promote the likelihood of success in this grand jury. And I'm going to ask you at the very end to say, yes, there was an enterprise. Yes, they did. A, they had a conspiratorial agreement. Yes, they took steps in furtherance of that conspiracy, and that conspiracy had an illegal objective to overturn the results of the election. And I think she thinks that because this big lie, which is what she's essentially prosecuting, was multifaceted in multiple jurisdictions, it's better for her to be able to tell the story to say, this was a big deal, this big lie, and it had tentacles all over the place. We here in Georgia can only prosecute our own uh, crimes committed in our geography, but understand that this is a this was a multifaceted, multi-jurisdictional scheme that we're looking at, and we're going to ask you to convict on the Georgia-related part of it. But you have to understand the full context of it. You know, it's like looking at a baseball team. You have to understand that yes, this is the Atlanta Braves, but the Atlanta Braves play in the in National League East, and the National League East is only one of three divisions in Major League Baseball, and that's only the National League, and then there's the American League, and so when you get to the World Series, you have to understand the whole process by which we get there. That's what she's, that's what she's saying um, in, in this case, and, and you know, it's a time-tested uh, theory of prosecution, which is you, you tell the full story rather than, remember there was a book as a kid called The Blind Men and the Elephant, and the blind men and the elephant story was different blind men touched different parts of the element elephant yes. and described it. It's a great story. So the one who the one who touched the tusk said an elephant is like a hard ivory type of skinny thing. The one who did the tail, it's a soft, pliable thing. The one who did the trunk, a big boulder. And and none of them individually described an elephant collectively. They they did. And that's what she's saying here. This we can't be blind men and elephants. We can't just describe the tusk or the tail. 
or, or the leg. We got to see the whole elephant. And that's what my indictment allows me to, to give you a, a picture of. Right. Okay. And on the minimum sentencing, there's been a lot here. Um, uh, it's, it's been, it's been claimed that, um, every, every person here is facing a sentence, a prison sentence of a minimum of five years. There seems to be some confusion about this. It is, uh, it's unclear, um, whether that's indeed the case. Um, but it may be that it may be that she's relying on that as leverage to, um, to get some of the other defendants to cooperate with the prosecutors. And uh, can you talk a little bit about whether or not that's the case um, and, and, and what we should expect to see there? So under the Georgia RICO statute, it says that a person convicted of a felony under the statute shall serve not less than five years or more than 20 years. So that not less than five years appears to be a mandatory minimum that you must go to jail for five years. But it seems as if there's some wiggle room that the court has, which is to say they sentence for not less than five years. So you have a sentence. You've been sentenced for not less than five years, five years, let's say. But I'm going to remand you to the custody of the the state to serve a year. And then the, the remaining four years, you'll be on probation. So it seems as if the sentence has to be not less than five years, but there is the discretion within the sentencing judge to allow for some period of incarceration less than five years. That's that's the that's the sort of operative theory. But honestly, there's a whole lot of confusion about whether you must serve the five years or there can be some sort of split sentence where you serve a portion in jail, a portion in home detention or uh, purely on on probation. But the point of it is, is that it's quite a hammer. And I think that you'll have categories of lesser defendants, especially, who will want to get out from under this mandatory five-year sentence, even if they can serve something less than five years in jail. And they'll be in two categories. There'll be ones who just have lawyers who say, look, my guy was uh, a bit player in this. All he's accused of having done is be a false elector. What about letting him plead guilty to being a false elector? He has no testimony that he can offer. He can just say, someone asked me to be a false elector and I said, yes. And I don't know anything above the person who asked me. And so he's just going to plead guilty to a lesser offense and not have any cooperation deal because there's nothing to to say that would be helpful. And then there are those who will have something to say and they'll get a better deal because they have, you know, information to give. But I think Fannie Willis in looking at the 19 people probably is thinking to herself in the end when we get to the the trial and she's proposing a March 4th trial date we'll have maybe six or seven defendants left. That's the vast majority are going to work out deals in, in, in some way. And that's a manageable trial. We'll see. I think in the teacher case, there were 12 people that went to, to trial. One of these RICO cases, there were 12 co-defendants. Um, that's very difficult. That's a very difficult case. I've never had a case in my life with that many uh, defendants charged. I've had big 
uh, money laundering conspiracies with you know multiple people involved, but we never went to a trial. We very rarely went to trial. Almost, uh, yeah, most most people in these RICO and money laundering cases end up pleading guilty because the evidence is pretty pretty overwhelming. But so in this case, you'll probably have a couple of people who won't plead guilty. So let's talk about uh, this very briefly. I'm not sure how you uh, are going to want to summarize this because I, I get that it can be very legally thorny um, and complicated. But former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows has filed a motion already to remove this case uh, from Georgia and uh, and basically put it in federal court. Can you maybe what are the cliff's notes? Uh, what do people need to know about why they would attempt to move it to federal court? Um, and which RICO laws would apply if it does move? And why, why, essentially, why is this so tricky? There are laws that allow federal people, federal officials who are charged with state crimes to have the case moved, they say removed, but moved from that state court to a federal court because of their status. And there are three things that, that allow for a state prosecution to be removed to a federal court. Actually, the, the, the state prosecutors still prosecute the case. They still use the state law to, to prosecute the case, but it's in it's in federal district court. We'll talk about what the advantage of that is if it goes to trial. Um, so the first one is that the alleged offender must have been uh, a federal official. So the offense must be committed by a federal official. So obviously- Okay, check. Um, that's pretty easy to prove. <laughs> um, uh, in the case of of, of Meadows and, and Trump, with a person like Giuliani um, or Eastman, little more tricky. They will say they were agents of a federal person, and therefore they get the same right to be considered a federal official. Uh, you know, if you're if you're the outside lawyer for the federal official and you're working on the behalf of their federal official work, then they'll claim federal official status and the courts have to figure out whether that, that's true or not. So step one, are you a federal official? Yes. Step two, which is the hardest one for, I think, many of these defendants is, was the charge that you are indicted for in the state related to any act under color of your office, meaning was this part of your official duties? So if you're a federal official and you take action inconsistent with your federal duties, then that's what this is intended to protect you against. <clears throat> if you're a federal official who at lunch uh, robs the bank, that's not in the scope of your employment. <laughs> it's not in the job you know? description, sir. Right. Well, then, and, and you think about it in the ordinary course. You have a, you, you work for a company, private company. You have a, you have a scope of your employment. If you act within the scope of your employment, the company is responsible for your behavior. And if they were, if you, if they sued the individual, the company would pay the 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 fine because uh, they were operating in the scope of their employment. If they were operating on a frolic or detour, they say, outside the scope, then that individual's on the hook themselves. Are those so the question here terms, is frolic? Frolic and detour, <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's excellent. Yeah, yeah. it is. It, it, 
it's great. When I was in law school, they used to tell these stories where uh, about legal ethics. The, the the guy walks into the lawyer's office and he says, "I slipped in the uh, soup in the in the um, in the supermarket." And the lawyer says, "Let me just stop you one second. Uh, I want to tell you something about the law. If you were in that supermarket shopping, and you slipped on the wet floor." They're they're responsible. If you were just cutting through the front door to the back door to uh, to avoid the rain, you're not a customer of the store, and they're not responsible. You're you're responsible. So let me tell. Let me ask you: Why were you in that store? <laughs> you know. So I wasn't frolicking, sir. <laughs> I wasn't frolicking, and it was no detour. I was I was there to buy socks, uh, but it's a supermarket anyway. So the question is: Was he acting under color of law? Was he acting in the scope of his business? And third, does he have a, a they call it a color, colorable federal defense, meaning that, that you have a defense that you can raise. And so the first part is for the court who has received this um, removal motion and set it down for a hearing at the end of August, um, Meadows and his lawyer, George Terwilliker, a very good lawyer, um, are going to have to argue to the court that these acts that Meadows undertook were undertaken as part of the scope of his federal uh, employment. The prosecutors are going to say, first, you were working for Donald Trump in this capacity as a his he was a candidate. So you were operating for candidate Trump, not President Trump. So don't tell us that this was under color of office, this was in your scope of duties, because Trump wore two hats. He was the candidate for president, and he was the president of the United States. You were acting on behalf of his candidacy. That's not what your job is. You lose. That, that's sort of what they'll argue. And in addition, they'll say, even if you were acting uh, you know, quasi in, in official capacity, what you were doing was a crime in furtherance, you know, uh, was activity in furtherance of the commission of a crime. And activity in furtherance of the commission of a crime is not covered um, by by this statute. You don't get the benefit of removal. Go back to state court and, and have your trial. And they'll have to take evidence of it. The reason he wants to be in federal court is if he is federal employee and he's acting within the scope of his employment, he has immunity. He can't be prosecuted. You know, we saw this, we see this a lot. In the Black Lives Matters cases where police officers have this qualified immunity, if they're acting as police officers in the scope of their employment and they whack somebody on the head with a billy club and they sue them for injuries uh, from that whack, they don't prevail because the police have qualified immunity. In the same sense, the federal officer here, Meadows, would say, I'm acting in the scope of my um employment and you can't sue me because I have immunity. That's, you know, if you don't like immunity, go, you know, get the law changed, but that's the law. And I get, I get, uh, get out of jail free card. Let me throw a bit of a wonky follow-up that this made me think of here, but would, is, is it conceivable that, um, you know, the, the, for example, the, the now infamous phone call, find me, you know, 11,000 votes, whatever it was to Brad Raffensperger. Um, is it conceivable that Donald Trump might try to make a defense that he was acting in his capacity as the chief law enforcement um, officer and that there was 
he legitimately suspected fraud there and that that call may have been in the capacity of that official role? Uh, Trump should hire you as his attorney. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. What, What Trump is going to argue if this case goes forward is I am the chief law enforcement officer of the United States. I have a duty to ensure that the the laws are um, carried out. And what I was doing, based on my honest belief that there was fraud, was exactly that. I was trying to make sure that officials looked into the allegations of fraud. Well, the problems with that are are, are many. Um, first, it's, it's it's not believable. Second, um, states behave. Um, second, states control elections, not the federal government. Yes, it's a federal election, but it, but it's but it's state driven process. That's why we have the certification and the electoral college and all that stuff. Elections were left to the states under the constitutional structure. So he has no responsibility to ensure that state officials are following the laws he his take charge uh of the federal laws responsibilities involve federal laws we're talking about state conduct here so he really wasn't you know it, it's really not in his scope of duty to make sure that states are behaving uh, consistent with their laws that's up to state authorities and he could call the governor which he did and he could call and he, and he can call the governor and say to the governor, hey, governor, this is all your purview, but would you please check out what I'm hearing here? Um, uh, you know, just a heads up. This is what I'm hearing. Uh, I don't know if you've heard it, but you ought to check it out. You know, let, you know, let me know if you want to, but, but it's your purview. So, but that's not the nature of what the call Has- sounded like. Hashtag federalism. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, it's a funny thing how... <laughs> Your your four states' rights, depending on <laughs> what right is at, at at question, right? So you know what will happen in these trials is that you're going to look at these these calls, and you're going to have to make judgments about what was the intent of the caller. Was the call to Brad Raffensperger just find me eleven thousand seven hundred and eighty votes, an honest effort to have the Secretary of State? investigate the rumors that there were fraud there or is it is or is it a shakedown is it is it hey man look we're on the same team just find 11,780 and and we win and that'll be good for me and that'll be good for the republican party and hey you know it also may be good for you personally if that's how they interpret the call that's a big problem if they say he was just acting you know innocently and as president to make sure that the, the laws were effectively uh uh, protected, then then he wins. But as we said a little while ago, sort of he needs to testify to make that defense. You know, because when you ask Rassenberger, how did you hear that? He'll say, consistent with his January 6th testimony, I heard it as a shakedown. I heard him not saying, you know, hey, man, Take a take a look at this. It's interesting, and you know it's your it's in your it's in your shop. But you know, just giving you a heads up, I heard it. First is you know, hey man, if you want to you know be on the same team, heard it as a threat. Actually, that's the yeah, that's what he that's, that's what he said. Here. I heard yeah. it as a threat. Yeah. yeah, 
So yeah, there's a there's an argument that uh, that that is not frivolous that says I was just doing what my presidential responsibilities require of me. And then there's the counter argument that that's nonsensical. First, it was a it's a state state election. Second, you're a candidate, and you were saying, hey, you know, just find me these votes so I can win. That that's not that's not what presidential duties are. Presidential duties aren't to make sure that you win. Uh, and all you were asking was, just find me 11. And what was language? Just find that's one more than we have. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, one more than we have. Just, yeah. <laughs> right. And so that's, that's candidate Trump. The argument will be that's candidate Trump talking. That's not President Trump. And you, Mark Meadows, were acting on behalf of candidate Trump, not President Trump. And then, yes, so what, what you did was not per se illegal, buying the pencil, buying a piece of paper, getting the, the getaway car, the clown nose. You did it consistent with the scheme to defraud. And that's not going to get you removal. But it's an argument. And the, and the, court, uh, the court has already set it down for sort of an evidentiary hearing to figure out, you know, how to decide this case. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about the overlap here between uh, between what Fonnie Willis is charging and what Jack Smith is charging uh, in federal court. And as a reminder for listeners, just a couple of weeks ago, a federal grand jury in D.C. indicted Trump over his attempts to subvert the 2020 election. And that indictment was only of Donald Trump. There were a half dozen uh, unindicted co-conspirators in that case. And based on reporting, five of those six unindicted co-conspirators are now indicted in the Fulton County case. So there's a difference here in approaches, even just in the sheer number of defendants, but then there's also some overlap in these two indictments in how they lay out the plot to persuade state legislators to throw out votes uh, and the fake elector scheme. And so, uh, you know, one of the first questions um, that I had when we were discussing this internally in our editorial call was, well, uh, there's this thing called double jeopardy. Does that apply here? Um, can you be prosecuted in both federal and state courts for exactly the same crime? Can you be then convicted in exactly the same crime? And are there any considerations um, that need to um, that that we need to think about between state and federal prosecutors and who yields to whom? Essentially, um, can you talk about how you see the the, the overlap here between um, both of the cases? So there is. Factually, a lot of overlap. What has been charged in the Georgia component of the federal indictment overlaps substantially with what has been charged in the Georgia uh, part of the indictment that is essentially the same behavior being charged federally and state. And so we ask the question, well, doesn't that violate double jeopardy? And the answer is no, because there's a doctrine called the dual sovereignty doctrine, which says that if you have two sovereigns, the federal government is one sovereign, the state of Georgia is another sovereign, that each is permitted to protect the laws and the integrity of the laws of their jurisdiction. And so there are two sovereigns. What Double Jeopardy says is the same sovereign can't try the same individual for the same conduct twice. So if you're charged with a crime, you go to jury trial and you're found not guilty, 
the prosecutors say, oh, damn, you know, we could have convicted him if only we put in this one piece of evidence. Let's indict him again and we'll put in this one piece of evidence and then we'll get him. That's double jeopardy. You can't do that. But Georgia can say, look, this guy violated our state laws and the federal government can say, and he violated federal laws. And so we're going to try him in both jurisdictions. And that's permissible. And we've seen that sort of famously in cases like Rodney King. Remember, Rodney King was beaten up by police officers in Los Angeles. The police officers were charged in, in the state uh, case, and they, they won on qualified immunity grounds, essentially. And then the federal government said, well, this is terrible. You know, this was a guy who really was beaten up by these police. Let us now bring federal charges for the same conduct under the civil rights statutes, which make it a crime to beat up Rodney King because he was African-American. And they and they brought a second case. So you get these dual sovereignty uh, cases all the time. The tricky part is that the Justice Department sort of has a policy um, based on a Supreme Court case, Pettit or Petit, um, which says, you know, it's pretty burdensome to be charged with the same conduct in two places. And the ends of justice are met if they're convicted one or the other. So let's try not to overlap if we if we can avoid it. And the state federal authorities will often uh, coordinate and not have overlapping prosecutions, but they are fully entitled to have overlapping prosecutions. And in this case, Fannie Willis has said that the nature of this behavior in my jurisdiction, my sovereign state, was so egregious, and it is so important for the integrity of our election system and for the people of Georgia to understand that we take election interference seriously. I'm not going to stand down in favor of the federal case. I am going to bring my own case um, because there are a lot of very legitimate reasons uh, for doing so. And that's her prerogative. So so she did. And the, and the federal prosecutors haven't um, complained that she can't do this because they know that she, she can. They've just taken different approaches to how they bring these cases. You asked the question about the different styles of these indictments. And you know, one is sort of a kitchen sink, all 19 defendants, all behavior in Georgia and elsewhere. Um, the full RICO story that we talked about. And Jack Smith has said, you know, I can't afford that as a matter of time. I can't have a seven co-defendant case with the with the political timeline that I have um, ticking. And so I'm going to laser focus mine on one person as the head of a conspiracy, but I'm going to leave the co-conspirators to another another day. And but the evidence about what was done in Georgia will overlap, should overlap, pretty much on all fours with the evidence uh, that Fannie Willis puts in. So when you have these two trials and you read the transcripts side by side, the witnesses in Jack Smith's case that are talking about the Georgia part of his indictment should be saying the exact same thing that they say in the state prosecution. If they don't, that's a, that's a problem. But 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 that's that's the the way it should work. Okay. 
So I want to come back. You mentioned uh, the, you know, the, I can't afford that kind of time, which is the way um, Smith is thinking about this. I want to come back to timeline in, in a few minutes, but first let's just um, button this up on the Georgia case about what prosecutors are going to need to prove, you know, contrasting with DC and the, you know, the question of Trump's state of mind, what's different about what they will need to prove in Georgia? Is criminal intent required here? Um, or is it a different standard? No, it's pretty much the same. I think in both in both cases, prosecutors are going to have to say that the defendant, that he Donald knew Trump, he was lying when he lied, that that he engaged in a scheme to defraud the United States by several means, one of which was lying and in order to force people to act, not just lie in the abstract, but lie to achieve a, an action. They're both going to have to prove that. And, and then what other means, though, with fake electors. In Georgia, for example, I think one of the most compelling pieces of evidence uh, about um, criminal acts, and they only have to need, remember, they have to, they've charged, I think, 161 different acts. And the, the jury has to only conclude that they did two or more of these things. So when you're a prosecutor and you present one of these cases, you'll say, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, we've charged the defendant with engaging in uh, a RICO enterprise criminal conspiracy. And we've said to you that he's engaged in the following overt acts and racketeering acts. In furtherance of that, if you agree that he and his conspirators engaged in two or more of those acts, uh, he shall be found guilty. And so they can pick it's a you know proverbial um, Chinese menu. They they just have to agree on 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 two, and and then there's guilt. And so they're both gonna they're both gonna say to the jury, you know, find guilt. But in Georgia, that which I think uh, is really hard to overcome because it has no speech or a reliance on defense of counsel arguments attached to it is the breach of the com uh, computers, the election machines in Coffee County. And remember what that was about was that in Coffee County, the, the, uh, which is a, a, a rural county about an hour or so south of Atlanta, the election officials allowed a private concern working sort of on behalf of the, the conspiracy to go in and illegally copy the hard drives of these um, uh, election counting machines and get access to all the ballots. Um, they were there to try and prove fraud, but they had no legal right to be there. And the election people had no right to let them be there. So those are charged acts within the conspiracy. And if you say again to the jury, find two acts that convict these people, and you're a jury thinking, well, maybe the First Amendment does apply because he's just talking and maybe he did get advice of his lawyers that do this. When you get to coffee, you know, you get to coffee and it's the breach of a computer system and the, nothing applies. That's just breaking an entry. That's just, you know, burglary, right. essentially. Right. And that's a pretty <laughs> compelling 
It's pretty straightforward. We, yeah. <laughs> convict, you know? Okay, there's... Um, I want to get to timeline in a minute because then this then then we start to, you know, uh, cross-reference with the political calendar and then this gets pretty um, dicey. But before we do that, what... Uh, given that I am not Trump's lawyer, not even a lawyer, what would you expect Trump's defense to look like the, in this case, you know, beyond what we've what we've already talked about in terms of acting in this official capacity? What's the best strategy here if you could, you know, steel man um, what his, you know, if, if, if he has a very well-qualified defense team, what what would they be doing? Well, so assuming no immunity and that this is going to go to a jury trial, I think the the three most obvious lines of defense is one, this is First Amendment protected activity. Um, All I'm doing is talking to people and I am the president of the United States and that's what I'm entitled to do. Second, to the extent that I did anything that involves an act, those acts were blessed by my attorneys. So I acted on the advice of counsel. And so if you got a problem with that, you know, go talk to my counsel, but I'm off the hook because of this defense of reliance on the advice of counsel. And then third, um, I never did this with criminal intent. I had an honest belief that there was fraud here. And all I was trying to do was investigate uh, or cause others to investigate what I thought were legitimate allegations of fraud. I didn't do that with any criminal intent, but I just did it, uh, you know, sort of at, at, as a good citizen, mm. you know, president mm. of the United States. And in the Mar-a-Lago case, uh, similarly, I think he will say, I took these documents. Yes, he can't say I didn't take them, but I took them because I believe the Presidential Records Act allowed me to take them. I believe that I was engaged in a process to cull through these boxes to take out which is that which was personal with the intent to return that which was uh, official. Uh, but you swooped in and in the middle of my process, seized all these boxes, um, didn't let me finish and, and, and accused me of, of criminal behavior for not working on your timeline instead of my timeline. I think none of those defenses really is very compelling but they're they're arguments that that can be made and i would think if you're trump's lawyer and you're given you know truth serum and you ask do you think you can win this case meaning 12 jurors voting not guilty i think the answer is probably not but if you ask the question do you think with these lines of defense that i've just laid out you might be able to get a juror to say, I'm not so sure, and thereby hang the jury because you know you need you, you a need unanimous, unanimous verdict. Right. right. Uh, that doesn't, a hung jury does not implicate double jeopardy. You can still retry the defendant a second time because he hasn't been um, acquitted. A double jeopardy is you first get acquitted and you can't be charged a second time. A hung jury is just, you know, do over essentially, and you get to do it over. Um, 
But I think that their notion is if we can get a do-over, if we can get a hung jury, now we're a year or two out, even if there isn't a, a change in the administration, if it's still the Biden administration, at some point they're gonna have to say, is this worth the effort? And there's a lot of times in after hung juries, the government decides not to prosecute um, or offer a, a better deal. Um, because who wants to go through if these are multi-month trials or multi-week trials with huge resources and you end up with a hung jury, do you want to go through that process again? And and you and you asked a question which I didn't answer earlier, which is why would Mark Meadows or anybody want to take their case to a federal court instead of you know leaving in the state court if they're gonna essentially be charged and tried in the federal court for these state charges. One of the answers is the jury pool. So the jury pool in Fulton County, where the case is currently, is made up of members of Fulton County. Fulton County voted 72%, I believe, uh, for for Biden. I think only like 52% for Warnock. So it was closer in that Senate race. But it's it's a Democratic um, district. If you go federal, it's a much broader um, jury pool. It takes all of the counties, Cobb and others that are that are north, which are much more Republican. And so if you go state court, you have, let's say, uh, a 70-ish percent of getting, uh, you know, sort of a quote-unquote Democrat jury. Right. If you go federal, you've got much less of a chance of getting a quote Democrat jury. Now, I have to say, Having said that, I don't believe for a moment that jurors, um, whether they're in red or blue districts, um, make decisions in a courtroom when sworn as jurors to listen to the evidence and, and make a decision on the evidence, that they ignore that evidence and say, yeah, but I like he thought he's my guy. He's a Republican, I'm a Republican, he's a Democrat, I'm a Democrat. I think overwhelmingly they they follow the evidence. That's why you see in red districts and blue districts, you know, convictions, uh, 90-ish percent um, across you know, federal prosecutions, because I think they know how to follow the law, irrespective of whether the person is on their political team or not. But the thought is, if you're looking for that one juror to hang it, and, and look, we just saw uh, an arrest today or yesterday from a woman who who's threatened Judge Chutkin saying that if he's convicted, uh, Trump is convicted, we're going to come and kill you. She was just she was just arrested uh, for threats. But you think she may not be a one off. There may be a whole host of people just like her in some of these rural counties who, if we're on a jury, um, says, you know, I'm not I don't care. He's my boy and I'm going to not convict him. You know, we we you so you see this whole process is corrupt. and. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah, valid. we saw that, right. you know, that that explains in some sense the acquittal of O.J. Simpson, because the evidence there was overwhelming that he uh, killed those those people. But yet, um, for political reasons, the jury didn't convict. And so that's an advantage. The thought is that's an advantage in a federal jury versus jury pool versus a state jury pool. Helpful. Very helpful. Let's uh, take a moment and talk about the timeline here. In Georgia, the judge sets the date for a trial. Right now, there are a lot of defendants, so that could mean a lot of pretrial motions. 
but prosecutors on Wednesday asked for a trial date of March 4th, 2024. And just for uh, context here, that is the day before Super Tuesday in the primary race. It is also potentially a conflict with the trial in New York City that is currently set to begin on March 25th. The Justice Department has asked for a January 2nd trial date in the D.C. case. The judge is expected to set that date at an August 28th hearing. And that would be just weeks before the Republican caucuses in Iowa. So right now, the trial date for the documents case is May 20th, 2024. What timeline would you expect to see for the Georgia case? And when there are different trials in different jurisdictions, how would you expect them to get scheduled? What role, um, if any, do you expect the election calendar to play in the trial dates? Um, Because it seems to me, just looking at all of the, you know, for lack of a better word, stuff there is to do, um, it seems unlikely that any of this might be settled by the, certainly by the time uh, Republicans need to choose a nominee for president, but possibly even before the general election 2024. Yeah, it's, it's a hot mess. That's a legal, <laughs> that's a legal term. Okay. Um, well, but, but we'll let put me it in the bucket say, with frolicking. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, and maybe after um, we finish taping, Ron, you and I can go on a frolic and detour and get a, <laughs> get a coffee. Um, I love that. So it, it, it's it's hard um, to figure out how you're going to, because you also got the E. Jean uh, yeah. uh, Carroll case. Remember, yeah. that starts yeah. in October, mm-hmm. right? You've got uh, the next six months, essentially. And in criminal cases, unlike the, the, the civil E. Jean Carroll case where Trump didn't have to be in the courtroom because it's a civil case, the criminal case, he has to be in the courtroom unless the judge somehow gives some special dispensation. He could be in the courtroom for six months if these trials go forward throughout the entire primary season, not that it matters necessarily to his, his base. You know, I think they'd vote for him whether he was in court on the campaign trail or incarcerated. That's just the way it, it is with them. And I also think cynically that one of his calculations in running for president again was just this. Oh, it's that. A, don't, if don't, I'm, yes, absolutely. As sorry, as Congressman Will Hurd has said so eloquently, Donald Trump is running so he doesn't go to jail. Like, <laughs> yeah, 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 right. yeah. So, and and so, if you are a prosecutor and 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 you believe that too, you're not about to say, well, you know, he's running for president. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt and push this. They're saying that's that's a calculation. He's doing that purposefully to to uh, avoid trial. So we're just going to keep pushing these trial dates, and it's going to be up to the courts to figure out what their scheduling looks like. And then it, it could be among the prosecutors to say, "Hey, let's look at our trials and figure out what to do." And I thought I heard that um, District Attorney Bragg in New York said that he was willing to stand down his case, not not bring it, but delay the prosecution in favor of another prosecution if there's a if there's a conflict. And so you may get these prosecutors agreeing, let's do Mar-a-Lago first, and then let's do the federal January 6th, then let's do um, Georgia, and then let's do New York. If those are the, that's the hierarchy of um, easiest to hardest cases uh, to win. But Fannie Willis is, is a bit of a, um, 
wild card here. Maverick? She's been working two and a half years <laughs> on this case. Yeah. Um, they, they put in, you know, Herculean efforts to gather all of this evidence, 75 witnesses over an eight month period, in a special grand jury that a separate indicting grand jury. She's got a lot of, you know, skin in the game in, in this. And, and I think, you know, with good reason, I don't say this critically of her, with good reason, she wants to bring her case to trial because she thinks there are important equities that need to be um, heard um, by the jury. And as well, remember, Georgia is the only jurisdiction that allows for televised. Um, it can be permission to televise the, the trial. And she might say, and the prosecutors might say, look, we have an audience here of 12 jurors, but we also have an American citizen audience. And the indictments haven't seemed to move the needle at all. But like with the Watergate hearings, if you will, if America is tuned in to this prosecution, then, and they hear all the evidence from all of these witnesses, most of whom worked for the Republican Party, were Republican elected officials, or were appointees of Donald Trump saying, yes, I told him he lost the election. Yes, I told him it was illegal for him to to do this. And notwithstanding that, he did it anyway. Maybe people say, well, you know, under those circumstances, I got to rethink this. I got to, you know, sort of, recalibrate my allegiance to him because this is pretty bad stuff. You know, it's sort of like you look at Richard Nixon, right? The Republicans in Watergate era were all on Nixon's side. And then you get, you know, John Dean and then the tapes and you hear Nixon, well, there's no tapes in this case, but you hear Nixon saying, you know, criminal things. And all of a sudden, the, the tide changes. Remember, there's a story Carl Bernstein tells that he and Woodward were um, meeting with Barry Goldwater. And Barry Goldwater had come back from being with um, President Nixon. And Nixon says to Goldwater, who was the head of you know sort of the Republicans in, in the Senate, so Barry, how many votes do we have? Meaning, can I, if we go to trial in the Senate, can I withstand it? Uh, will I get acquitted? And he says, Mr. President, I don't know a few, but you don't have mine. Barry Goldwater says you you won't have mine, and Nixon resigns the the next day. Um, and so, because Goldwater heard the evidence in in the Watergate hearings and in the trials, and said, you know, enough's enough. And so, I think Fannie Willis might say, I have got that imperative that nobody else has, which is to let the American public see the trial and hear the evidence and then make a decision about who this guy is. Michael, I want to be very mindful of the time here, but there is one other question on my mind um, that I, that I, that I want to put to you. It's a, maybe it's a more personal question. It's a tougher question. We talked about it last week on the show. um, But you know, as, as all of the, both the calendar and the indictments themselves being, you know, the, the, the tangle of, of all of this for Donald Trump accrues to, um, to use your words, a hot mess for a lot of observers. 
um, you know, voters could be forgiven for not being able to keep track of all of the different um, trials and jurisdictions, um, all the various things that he is charged with. And as we head into 2024, the politics of this, um, I've said with each indictment, uh, it accrues to his benefit. And indeed, you know, from a fundraising perspective, it has. Um, but the question is, if he's convicted on on any any of these charges that would result in uh, potentially prison time, and then we know in Georgia that the governor cannot um, cannot provide clemency unilaterally. It's not a pardonable crime uh, by a by a president, but and the other cases there would be. The question is really, what would be the best outcome, not for Donald Trump, but for the country, um, for democracy? Um, we have some pres- precedent in, as you brought up, the Watergate scandal um, uh, for, a, for a presidential pardon. What do you think should happen to Donald Trump if he's convicted? Should he serve time in prison, or do you think it might be appropriate for the country uh, for some clemency to be considered? Um, just generally, what are your thoughts on on that front? Given that I understand how I, I know you understand the gravity of the 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 consequences if we get to that point. Yeah, it's a great question, and as a younger person, when Gerald Ford pardoned Richard Nixon, I was outraged because that criminal had to go to jail. As I've aged, I thought, you know, good for you, Gerald Ford. We needed to turn the page and and, and move forward. So in the case of Trump, I have this, you know, sort of dual notion of what's most important is that he be held accountable for his conduct, be found guilty, most importantly to me, in what I'm calling the January 6th case, the big lie, that he has to be held criminally accountable for that. A jury has to say, yes, you did this. You committed this crime. This big lie scheme was a crime. And whether he goes to jail or not, I don't care. I just need for closure in a sense, and I think what the country needs for closure in a sense is the pronouncement that this scheme that you've perpetrated for all of this time was a big fraud. And you're a fraud and you're the head of an enterprise that engaged in a a multi-part fraud. And, you know, whether he goes to jail or, you know, continues to play golf at Bedminster and Mar-a-Lago, I don't really care. I just want the the conclusion uh, and have that conclusion be accepted by, you know, the vast majority of, of, of Americans. They might not get everybody. There will still be 20% of Republicans probably who still believe it was deep state uh, behavior. Uh, so that I think that's where I come out, Ron, that I just want accountability Incarceration doesn't matter to to me as much as as accountability. It's a tough question, and I appreciate the answer and 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 thinking about it seriously. I know there are some listeners who are 
thinking, how could you even, how could you even ask that question? Of course he should go to jail. And, and, um, I do think it's a question that requires real thought no, we'll see what, what happens obviously, but, um, but the stakes are quite high and I just want people to remember that. Yeah. So some people have proposed, well, what if, what if Biden said, look, I'll pardon you on the federal charges if you drop out of the race yeah, and, and never run and again, go, <laughs> and, and never run around and go, you know, uh, quietly into the, into yeah. the good night yeah. that I don't, that I, I wouldn't believe is, is an appropriate outcome because mm-hmm. there's no accountability. Right. And I, I think that's what yeah. matters most. When I think you behave this way, you've got to be held accountable for your behavior. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's leave it there for today. Um, but Michael, let's not, um, let another year or two go by before, before, before you're back on the show. It's been a pleasure having you. Um, and, uh, is there anything else, you know, normally when we do a roundup today was rather unorthodox, but when we do a roundup, usually, um, we invite our guests to offer some look ahead story or something under the radar that they're watching. Is there anything on your mind that we didn't get to or a story you want to bring to people's attention? Well, I think the thing that, that concerns me most now is the behavior that we're seeing. We talked about one, this, this woman who's been arrested for threatening judge Chutkin. We see that there's a, um, a fringe, right wing website that has posted the names and addresses of the grand jurors in Atlanta that that um indicted that you know led to the indictment of Trump and i think it's really important to keep an eye on that remember um ruby freeman the poll worker talked about how much her life was ruined um, after she d- just did her job. And I think I want to keep my eye on what law enforcement's response and what the community of, of us uh, people responses to these attacks on people who are just doing the constitutionally required job they took an oath to uphold. Because that's really important stuff. Okay. Uh, until next time. It's been great. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for being here, Michael. Talk to you soon. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.